Hey everyone, and welcome back to another book podcast. I hope you're all having a wonderful summer and enjoying all of the amazing books that have come out this July and August so far. Speaking of which, on this week's episode, we have the lovely Fiona Valpi on the podcast, whose beautiful new novel, The Cypress Maze, came out on the 18th of July. It's an incredible story of two women in the Italian countryside during World War II who go to extraordinary measures to protect children fleeing from other parts of the country. The novel is made even more heart-wrenching by the fact that this is actually based on a real-life story. So, we hope you enjoy this week's episode. As per usual, a quick disclaimer. Despite any connections to the publishing industry, all opinions on books and biscuits are completely our own here at Another Book Podcast. So let's dive into this week's episode. Welcome to another book podcast. Thank you so much for being on today and the lovely weather you're indoors on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It's fine. It's great to be here. Amazing. And yeah, so we're talking about your new book that's coming out in July, mm-hmm. uh, The Cypress Maze. Would you be able just to tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Um, it's a dual timeline novel. I'm I've sort of become known for writing dual timeline novels. <laughs> so um, there's no surprise there that this is this is another one of those. Um, and it spans the period from Italy during World War II up until 2015. So, you know, pretty much up to maybe the pre, pre-pandemic era, we will be calling it in years yes. to come. Um, and it looks at the experiences of two very different women so in um, the 1940s Beatrice Crane comes from Scotland very wet behind the ears very Mm. um, you know unworldly um, to spend she probably she thinks probably a year teaching a bit of English in Italy and being a tutor and having that experience spreading her wings but then war shuts down the world and she is one of the people who gets stuck um and it did happen in Italy that that there's a there's a wonderful film with Cher in it called Tea with Mussolini and it tells the story of a group of women who who are sort of expats who get stranded in Italy because there was this feeling that Italy wasn't going to enter into the war and therefore it would be a safe place to be but it was it was obviously a uh, not to be with Mussolini and mm. um, the fascists and then siding with with Adolf Hitler. Um, so Beatrice comes in the 1940s and gets stranded and very much has to rely on the um, support and help of strangers to, to get through. Um, and then in 2015, um, we have Tess, whose husband has has died um, he's had motor neurone disease, and that's not giving anything away. It's very much um, spelled out up front that Tess has been through this this terribly traumatic experience, and she's really struggling with life. And she also comes to this beautiful villa in Tuscany um, as part of her healing process from grief. So it feels at first like these two women would have very little in common, but as they get to know one another they realise that they both share um, the experience of devastating loss and grief. And um, there are all sorts of connections and as well as contrasts between the two timelines and Mm. their experiences. Um, So that was very much something that I wanted to to explore using the two timelines and the two different female characters. 
I mean, they're both incredible characters and you really do feel for them both. And even though their loss is so different, you mm-hmm. really do kind of feel for them in the same way because they have both experienced that devastating loss. Yeah, and, and I, I I think that is a very human bonding experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who have who have been through loss and grief, I think, find... Um, sometimes kindred spirits um by meeting other people who who understand the depth of of what perhaps they've been through in terms of that trauma yeah and understanding as well that that everyone deals with grief differently and that they've all kind of just got to go through it themselves but Uh, can take comfort in each other as well yes yeah I I describe it as um grief is a path that you have to walk on your own but other people can be walking beside you or other people mm-hmm. can be walking on their own paths in parallel. And that brings great comfort sometimes. Yeah. Oh, that's so lovely. And so what inspired you to write about Beatrice and Tess? Um, well, I love Italy. Absolutely adore Italy. Um, I've written um, several books about France, um, as well as books set in Scotland and a book set in Morocco. And Italy was somewhere that I'd always longed to write about just because I I have such an affinity for that country. Um, I've never lived there. I've only been there on wonderful, magical trips. And that's probably Mm. why I love it so much. I'm a great believer that, you know, we should should keep a a magical place that we don't spoil by actually living there and having to face face the reality, (laughs) the grim realities sometimes of life. Um, so for me, Italy has always been this magical place. Um, so I, I think it was bubbling away at the back of my mind for quite a while. And then I visited Tuscany. I'd already visited it several times, but on this trip, I was staying a little bit further away from, from the usual centres of, of Florence and Siena. And um, in this, down towards the Val d'Orcia, which is a bit of a forgotten corner of Tuscany. Um, and it feels very different to the rest of Tuscany. It's it's quite a wild area, quite untamed, and, and has this long, long history dating way back into the past, you know, to, to the Etruscans before the Romans. Um, and so I was quite intrigued by this area. I then read about an amazing villa that's in the Val d'Orcia, and it's called La Foce, F-O-C-E. It's, it was owned by a woman called Iris Arrigo. And she was Anglo-American, but, but married an Italian and came to live in this stunning estate. And she created a garden there. She was really passionate about gardening. Um, and she beautifully combined the kind of formality and restraint of Italian gardens with you know lots of greenery um not not a huge color palette lots mm. of quite geometric clipped box to box hedges to give it structure but then she brought in her sort of English and American flamboyance as well and created this beautiful English style of garden alongside the Italian one and I, I just loved but you know both seeing both of those yeah. with the with the backdrop of this stunning italian villa 
So in itself, it's a very beautiful place. But then I read more about Iris Arrigo, and it turned out that she she wrote two incredible war diaries because she was she was there during the war years. Um, but she didn't just sort of sit there isolated in her beautiful villa and garden. She took in children uh, as refugees from um, largely from Turin, which was terribly badly bombed, and the um, the situation there was was dreadful. And parents just wanted to get their their children away to safety. So first of all, Iris took in these these children. Um, she also took in all sorts of other people that mm. that sort of drifted through the villa. Um, either on their way north or on their way south, depending which side of the, the fighting yeah. they were on. Um, there were escaped prisoners of war. There were allied wow. airmen. There were, um, you know, G Germans who were um, trying to escape some of the fighting in the latter years of the war. And she she gave refuge to everybody who came through. And it was this incredible spirit of generosity at a time when her own life was at risk um, mm. and when sh she and her family had nothing because although they lived in this glorious paradise, um, you know, people were starving. They're, they were on starvation rations. The country of Italy had been absolutely devastated, not just by the world war, but also by a civil war that was raging mm. between the fascists and the partisans. Um, so yeah, it was all of that sort of came together in my mind um, to inspire this book. But um, I owe a lot of thanks to Iris Arrigo because she was just truly inspirational. I mean, that's incredible. So Beatrice is based on Iris. I mean, she, well, um, Beatrice isn't. Beatrice is more of a um, a bystander, if you like. I, I yes, guess I guess she's character... one of the people that goes through. Yes. yes. So the character who is is more closely based on on Iris is Francesca, who is yes. the villa owner. And um, yeah, I, I was very much channeling Iris when I was writing mm. Francesca. But I wanted I didn't I didn't want to to write an, a book about Iris Arrigo with a character that was purely based on her because mm. she's written her own story and, and her two war diaries are incredible writing. Um, wow. And so, you know, for anyone, I would say read those because it's it's firsthand witness statement, if you like. Incredible. And, and she writes brilliantly. She was a she was a, a talented writer anyway. She she wrote biographies. So um, in writing her own diaries and recording these extraordinary events as they unfurled, um, she did something really incredible. Um, there's also a very good biography of her written by Caroline Moorhead, um, who's written several books about Italy in the war years, um, amongst other all sorts of other books that she's written. Um, and so I didn't want to write Iris's story. I wanted to write someone mm -hmm. else's story, but but in that setting. So that's yeah. where Beatrice comes in as um as a as a witness to that. But she's she's not Iris. Yes. And actually, you know, thinking about it as well, it is so interesting having her there. And like Beatrice is so obviously kind of 
I, I love her looking back on her her younger self and thinking I was so ignorant I knew yeah. nothing you know she was like I was just coming to this country like just thinking oh you know Italian culture and and you know the the beautiful settings and the food and like oh this boy that I quite like and then it all just she kind of is faced with a harsh reality but she's fully aware of the fact that she was naive when she came to the country um about all the politics that was going on until the war Mm -hmm. was like on her doorstep and swept her up in it so she's such an interesting person to have like that view on it and when you were saying about iris keeping um diaries is that kind of reflected in the fact that um Francesca keeps her drawings because Beatrice absolutely loves Francesca's drawings and it's so lovely to think that she looks at them all the time yeah I I did feel that I needed some way of um of of having the events being be recorded but again, I, I didn't want to make it a, co- a sort of carbon copy of Iris yes. writing a diary, which actually um, Iris's diary, she kept it buried in a tin box in the garden when she wasn't writing it. So, oh, really? but, you know, <laughs> there's, there is all sorts of um, inspiration there for, for what happens in the book. Um, wow. But yeah, the, the paintings were, Francesca's paintings were important because by the time Tess arrives at the villa, Francesca isn't there anymore. And I still needed Francesca's voice to be to be able to speak for itself mm. through Beatrice, but I I wanted to to get across um, just who Francesca really was and and how much she did for those children and and what generosity of spirit she had. Mm. And I think as well for I felt like I was Tess in the moments when she's looking at the drawings and it's it's just really driving home all of the stories that Beatrice is sharing with her because listening to someone say like all these horrible things that that happened to people during that time mm-hmm. when you then see something like that on paper that connects that story in your mind it is then just it really yeah just kind of drives it home that that actually did happen and these people did experience that and like right where she's standing as well she is in the house where all of those like all of the fear happened but also all of the love and Mm -hmm. the sense of community and family in that house um it's amazing to know that, that that there actually was a villa like that that kind of just welcomed everyone and yeah. shared what little they had with anyone who needed it it's a Absolutely. real like keeps faith in humanity kind of yeah story. it does I mean I, I think that um you know the stories of ordinary people in extraordinary times are really compelling Mm. because they're still applicable today we've we've all been through quite extraordinary times in in the past years with with the global pandemic and experiencing mm. things that we we never dreamed we would experience so there's so for me there's so much comfort and um support to be derived from hearing about especially women who have who have stayed so strong and so resilient and yet combine that with this real gentleness and kindness and compassion. And I feel really strongly that that this world that we live in at the moment needs needs that combination yes. of, of kind of strength and compassion hand in hand. Definitely. And, you know, the, mm. the heroes of the war are not just the people who went off to physically fight in the front line, you mm-hmm. know, 
like the people like Francesca and Beatrice are the people who made sure that they had people to come home to and made sure that everyone just kept going and like just got through it because that's just as important as fighting the fight it's actually get getting through the the situation and and like you said you know you can really feel that in terms of the way you know it's it's a completely different situation but it's the same kind of core value of you know all these I can think of like Joe Wicks doing his Mm -hmm. uh, morning sessions every day doing lockdown just to get people through it make sure that they were mentally okay make sure that they were physically okay and it's it is just that sense of yeah community and and getting people through a, a horrible event is just as important absolutely and and feeling feeling those links um you know, public figures like Joe Wicks did, did an amazing job, but there were also all the little um, Zoom sessions that we had, you know, the pub quiz sessions that we would have or the, or the you know, let's all get together and on a Friday night and, and drink a glass of wine together and the yeah. book groups that kept going and the way that, that reading books became even more important as a way of, of connecting with the outside world. Yes. So all of those different strands became so much more important and I I hope we don't lose that we need to keep reminding ourselves that um you know that those are good things yes definitely and and that connection of of any kind you know it doesn't need to be like just meeting up but yeah like sharing a book with someone or sending someone something to their house like it it doesn't need to be like actually meeting up and going for coffee or for tea like it's just knowing that somebody's there yeah is just as important as physically being there and yeah you definitely get that sense in in the Cypress Maze did did this take you long to write or did it come to you all quite quickly um bits of it came really quickly partly because of the my passion for Italy and the fact that I'd been I'd been gathering little bits and pieces I'm a real magpie when it comes to um finding bits of inspiration so I have all sorts of folders half of which will will never become a book and see the light of day but they're just little ideas and and little um, snippets that I've gleaned ideas or um, throwaway lines that people say or an article that I've read or or a really good podcast that I've listened to Mm. Um, so I've been gathering my material for quite a while and then of course having Iris's amazing diaries transported me right there in that World War II period. Um, it took a little bit longer when I was when I came to researching the um, the aspects of motor neuron disease because it's such a dark and painful subject. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had a personal connection with two different people who had the misfortune to suffer from motor neuron disease. Um, and I knew their wives. Um, so I had the opportunity to speak to the wives about what it was like to um, go through that terrible suffering, uh, watching the person you love suffering. Mm. Um, and one of the, the men who had motor neuron disease was a, a friend and ex-colleague of mine called Richard Selly. And he actually was brave enough to to document his whole experience of motor neuron disease and he took the really harrowing decision to travel to Switzerland in the end wow and um and end his life there so uh, having his first-hand testimony too um was really helpful in my 
writing of the book, but it was so such an intense experience reading all that, you know, mm. ter- about terrible suffering. Can you imagine? Um, so I kind of had to pace myself a bit with that. And um, you don't want to, you never want to immerse yourself totally in darkness, uh, you know, if unless like someone who's suffering from motor neuron disease, you tragically find that, that that's your lot in life. Um, so I was very conscious of sort of trying to mix a bit of light with the darkness too, and and pace myself on that one, partly because I wanted to really do justice to the, that strand of the story, and um, and not get too carried away with the emotion of it, you know, not yes. not not allow the emotion to to overwhelm my instincts as a writer to be able to um, get across, still with lots of emotion, hopefully, but. Um, to be able to get across the the facts of the situation, so so all of that took a little while, and then uh, not my finest moment, I have to admit. I I decided to climb a very high ladder one one night to shut a a, a high high roof light in my house that had come open in a Scottish storm, and I fell twenty feet, and I managed to break several bones. Um, oh, I broke no. my yeah, I broke my neck in two places and my pelvis in three places. So. You know, if a job's worth doing, do it properly. I certainly did that properly. Um, But uh, I ended up, clearly, I ended up in hospital for quite a long time. I was incredibly lucky to um, not be paralysed or or killed um, in the fall. And I was also incredibly lucky that all the breaks mended really well. And I had fantastic care, uh, which went on for quite a long time. So everything's fine now absolutely fine and um I've gone on to other things but at the time even though I had to spend many months lying in my bed which should be the perfect time for writing um I was taking so much pain relief that Mm -hmm. my brain was pretty adult but but my um my publisher was wonderful and completely understood said said that I could just ask for an extension to my deadline I didn't need to throw myself off a ladder next time (laughs) (laughs) so um, so this book did take a little bit longer um, than anticipated but um, yeah it's it's all the all the more wonderful to see it now you know about to come out Yes, definitely. I mean, oh my gosh, what what a way to yeah to get an extension. That's, I mean, that's awful. I'm so glad that you're okay. And that <laughs> it, you. yeah, it didn't, yeah, didn't cause any like a lasting damage. No. But um, but no, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm so glad it's coming. I'm so excited for you that it's coming out because it really it really is an amazing book. I mean, this is a a kind of book that I would read just as as a reader anyway. But I mean, I was crying on public transport it was oh. so emotional <laughs> couldn't couldn't quite when any time that's like one of the characters that I loved like either passed away or or something where that you know something emotional happened I was just a goner wherever I was reading it but then <laughs> I think it is definitely and like obviously reading um Tess's story and the kind of I, I'm so glad that you did it in the way that you did it where you kind of are drip fed her story mm-hmm. because I, I mm-hmm. do think that it would you know for, for me who's never experienced anything like that or, or know anyone who's experienced something as as harrowing as that even just if I had to read all of that together I would 
Like, mm. it would just be so upsetting to read, to think mm. that people do go through this and that they do have to make that decision to take themselves to a whole other country. And then, you know, for them, there's that, like, reassurance that, okay, like, this this is it. Like, I, I no longer have to suffer. Mm. But then you know that whoever you're leaving behind will then have to deal with the fact that you're not there anymore. It's, it's just... Yes. It's, it's such a horrible so, position to put in. There are so many layers of, of complexity to that situation. And, and none of us knows what we would do if we were faced mm-hmm. with that, that choice or that decision. Um, and of the two men that I knew who had died of, um, with motor neuron disease, you know, one, one chose not to, to go and, and end his life early. He died at home with his wife there. Um, and there's, you know, there's incredible courage in both those different paths. And Definitely. I completely believe that people should have the choice. It, it, there's nothing that should be forced on people. But the trouble is at the moment in the UK as a whole, we don't legally have that choice. Mm. It's just, you know, legally you, you, you cannot do that. Uh, you cannot make that decision. Um, and the law is very subtly different between Scotland and England. In Scotland recently, following quite a lot of campaigning from people who, who really believed strongly in this issue, um, they have decriminalised um, assisting, not, well, not assisting, but, but being present. So you can, it's not illegal in Scotland to accompany somebody on their journey to Switzerland, whereas in right. England it is. Yeah. So, and, you know, and, and that, that just piles on more trauma. Um, so yeah, that's so complicated and so many different layers to it. I think, um, you know, you were talking about that balance between, um, getting the emotion across and it's an incredibly serious and dark topic, but also not becoming overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Because as a writer, I, you know, I wanted to get these messages across. I want my readers to 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 be able to read from the beginning of the book to the end of the book without yeah. feeling this is too much I have to put it mm-hmm. away so I don't you know in no way am I am I belittling any of the the traumas and the the issues that I talk about whether whether it's um you know horrendous um deeds that were committed in World War II or whether it's something like the issue of motor neuron disease in the modern day um, I certainly don't want to play those down, but I want to um, find that balance, hopefully, through my characters, through their voices, um, so that we all gain a, a deeper understanding mm. and, and um, you know, we can hear those stories and we can then think about it for ourselves and, and come to our own decisions and our own conclusions. But hopefully it's starting conversations as well. Yes, definitely. I mean, because, you know, there's with a World War Two novel, it's very easy to kind of think that's horrible. And like, that's so awful that people went through that, that that happened like in the past. But then with Tess's story, you're kind of brought around to, okay, there's, you know, there's not a world war happening, but people are suffering Mm -hmm. with different illnesses. And it, it is like, you know, it's escapism with Beatrice kind of putting yourself in in the world in World War II Italy 
and then it's bringing you back to the present with Tess and and thinking okay but people are still experiencing like horrible grief and horrible Mm. choices and then living with those choices It, it was so hard to listen to her say that you know there are things that she regretted about his death you know she was there but she didn't like administer the medication like physically with him mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and how that was like you know kind of tearing her in half because she was like I should have done that for him I should have put myself you know all these things where you're like you just want to scream at her like it's not your fault like yeah. you did the best you could but you completely understand how if you were her in that moment you would probably be thinking all the same things as well and it it really does ground you in in the present as well as then giving you that bit of escapism into the past Mm -hmm. and they're both kind of going through their different versions of acceptance yeah um, absolutely more palatable (laughs) and and walking that path that we were you know we were talking Mm. about earlier that path of grief they're they're on their own paths and and as you said so rightly everybody has to take their time and find their own way and it isn't something that that anyone else can really help you to do and to go through and yet where is the comfort you know where is the human connection and the support Mm. and and I really strongly believe that you you get it from just having other people understand and and get what you're going through with no pressure to to make it all right or to you know for someone else to heal you you have to do it yourself and it's one of the hardest things we ever have to do as human yeah. beings but um there is comfort there there is always light alongside yes. the darkness yeah and one of the other things that I thought was so interesting was when in like Beatrice's younger life in World War II with Francesca and Eduardo, when they're building the maze, that's their kind of outlet for everything where yeah. they think, you know, like if we build this maze, we have something to work towards, which again, you know, I fully understand, like it, it just puts your mind onto something and yeah. gives you a sense of control in a world of no control you don't know what's happening but was there a reason you chose like a maze rather than just you know working on the garden or yeah the maze has huge symbolism of course um it it symbolizes that um sort of torturous path that Mm -hmm. that that grief leads you on it isn't a straight line there are all sorts of wrong turnings and Mm -hmm. dead ends and doubling doublings back um and and you know and then when you get to the center what is there there that's the big question what is there there and how do you then um navigate your way on through that maze to 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 kind of come out the other side and be able to to carry on with life again um perhaps taking your grief with you to a certain extent because i don't believe we ever get rid of grief it is something that we learn to 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 carry with us and to to live around um so there was that there was also the fact that it uh, it was made out of cypresses um which historically represent grief you know that they're they're these dark trees but they're so typical of the Tuscan countryside as well so I liked combining those two aspects of it I thought it was um you know very fitting for to have that created within the villa um but also to, you're right about 
the construction of the maze. There's a very good reason in the book why they construct that maze. And then other reasons start to um, unfold and become apparent a little bit later too in the book. Um, but there's there's this gorgeous um, quote from Audrey Hepburn to say that pl to plant a garden is to believe in the future. And that's a strand that I've, I've woven into the book. They talk about being able to plant the garden, the maze, to, to create that beautiful environment. It is a sort of um, way of saying, I believe that there will be a tomorrow, no matter how hard today is. Um, so not only does it give you something to focus on in the present, which is really, really important, mm. but it's filled with that hope, the hope of, yeah. um, you know, that after winter, spring will come and the the little dead sticks that you're planting at the moment in the autumn will eventually grow and have leaves and blossom and and give future generations a lot of pleasure and and link the present to the future and i think that um again during the pandemic in lockdown loads of people talked about how they were gardening mm -hmm. and um i went online i'd heard about this on social media that the call went out to say that you know garden centers were all closed and all the little um nurseries had, had produced all their plants to sell for that spring and summer season, we're, we're just going to have to chuck them in a skip, basically. And so this, there was a, a call that went out to say, you know, they'll sell them direct, which they wouldn't normally do, and they'll they'll sell them cheaper, and you just buy a bundle. You just sort of are supporting the little nurseries and, and yes. helping them, but also giving a home to, <laughs> to these poor plants that have been grown. Yes. And I subscribed to to a couple of those, and it was just wonderful Amazing. to have these boxes of of little plants delivered and plant them. And they weren't things that I would necessarily normally know or choose, even though I'm a keen gardener. Um, but yeah, part of the fun of it was just seeing what came up, you know, mm -hmm. and, and how these things then developed. And it was hugely comforting to to be doing that during during lockdown during a time when you know, we we needed those those connections more than ever. Yeah. And like as well, they, you know, you touch upon this in the book, but you know, they Beatrice starts to learn about, you know, plants and greenery and, and everything that she's looking after in the garden and how like all of it's sort of different to manage. And again, that would be something that's is is very symbolic of like because they're also looking after these children and how they need to like care for all of these different aspects of their life differently then like it's reflected in in the way that they're caring for this garden and how much she's learning about all these different things that are going to grow and I think that is so nice to have a link like you said to the future when it's so easy to just get so caught up in the past and without you know ruining anything too much there's when one of the characters goes through a, a loss that like I think is going to break her at the time and and I would understand why it's like that hope of the future that she sees through the garden that really brings her back to life mm -hmm. and really enables her to keep going and I think it is it's moments like that that make the book such an incredible read rather than a really kind of upsetting kind <laughs> of 
too too steeped in the in the sadness of it all it's it's those moments of like hope yeah that are threaded that really that really keep you going and and make it so enthralling that's so lovely to hear I'm <laughs> I'm I feel very moved and touched that you related so strongly to my characters because when I was writing them I really enjoyed both of them and yes. and got very close to them so I I love that you um you got them and but also that you got the that juxtaposition of darkness with with hope with mm. light and and as we just go about our day-to-day business there's so many instances where it doesn't hurt to remind ourselves of that yes definitely and you know Tess Beatrice Francesca uh, they're all just like we said such strong characters and I I did love the fact that you know um there's you know that there's male characters like you know dotted throughout it's very realistic <laughs> there's male and female but the women are the ones who are in control who are who are driving things who are keeping everyone going and the men are there to help the yes. men are there to to listen to <laughs> them and be like yes like whatever you need we'll do it which is great but it is you know you can definitely tell that the women are at the front and center of everything and really keeping everyone going was that quite important for you to show that they were like that really the helping in the war effort at home yeah absolutely i think that um you know quite often women were the unsung heroines of mm. the war um not just keeping the home front going, but but also getting actively involved, taking really courageous decisions in terms of involvement in the resistance, for example, um, and in terms of putting their own lives at risk to to save others. Um, and we, you know, the, the, we don't think of the women necessarily always. Uh, and more and more is coming to light now about the different roles that women did play within the war. You know, we've got the example of Bletchley Park now that's that's only recently come to light and the women that that kept that um, code-breaking centre running and they were mm-hmm. absolutely vital. Um, so all these roles, I, th- I think it's time that we we did talk about them a bit more and give the women the the admiration and the respect that, that they deserve. Definitely. And, you know, as well, it, it must have been quite hard for them to then have like the men come back and then like that relationship between men and women must have been at such a such a strange time um in that post-war period where it's like we've been in control of things but but now that the men are back and they're changed from the war mm-hmm. and everything and it's it's yeah it's such a kind of such an interesting time period and I didn't know so much about Italy because I I feel like whenever I read war stories it usually is France Mm -hmm. or even you know Poland or or somewhere like that and maybe you know England as well and what's happening here at the time but it it was mainly France I would be reading about when I read either you know fiction or non-fiction on it so reading about Italy I feel like I never truly understood how torn the country was Mm -hmm. and how just like different areas were experiencing completely different you know senses of safety or fear or you know Mm. while you may be in a non-fascist area they're then bombing that area or would you you know or are you in the fascist area where you've got Germans trying to stay in your house and see if you're harboring any fugitives and you know Mm. just 
yeah like how torn the country was was that quite did you learn anything as you were researching that you didn't know before anything <laughs> I learned so much honestly and I, there were so many times when I thought this is this is beyond me I can't I can't get to grips with the timeline of the war in Italy because it is so incredibly complex and perhaps that accounts for um the fact that you know you would nor- normally read books about maybe France or Poland where it was much mm-hmm. more clear cut there was there was you know certain events happened on certain dates um in Italy it it just washed backwards and forwards and and it and it wasn't the same all over yeah. the, the country um and you also then had the the element of um allied bombings for example because you know the children who were who were refugees in La Foce in Tuscany and and also who are ref- who become the refugees in my book the Cypress Maze um you know their their city has been bombed by the allies it's been bombed by the british mm-hmm. we're the baddies here yeah. in that context and and yet for iris and for francesca and for beatrice um you know that they, they they're very torn because of course they're supporting the allied side but then there are these people who have had terrible experiences at the hands of the allies so um it's it's just so complicated and then you you add in the fact that there was this civil war going on and at one point as well just for good measure italy decided to declare a separate war against greece um while all this was going on and at that point i was almost throwing my history books out of the window <laughs> and thinking oh for goodness sake you know just when i thought i had some sort of a grip on what was <laughs> yeah. happening and i was starting to understand it something else comes in and you know it was it was this completely um devastating situation where where a country was being torn apart in all directions by by the world war but by civil war as well and then by a war with with its neighbors and um yeah just so complicated the the other interesting thing that i learned was that, or that i realized because on some level i must have surely known this all along um that i was looking into soe involvement you know the, the special forces um getting involved in italy earlier in the war um because partly because that's a strand i wanted to include in my book and i realized that of course when agents went into france they were they were going into an enemy country because it was german occupied and the germans yeah. had taken over france but when they went into italy nominally that italy wasn't part of the war to begin with and then bits of it were and then of course you had this contrast between um the fascists and the partisans who who were fighting against fat- fascism so um you know it wasn't as clear cut as as going into an enemy country they if they dropped soe agents in they were they were in this very difficult situation of um really spying on people who first of all weren't involved in the war um and then on people who had very split um opinions about the war so that was another layer of complexity i mean oh my goodness the 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 cups of tea and the biscuits that i had to get through <laughs> to uh, 
to navigate the, you know, the war in Italy were just extraordinary. But actually what I kept coming back to when I was ready to chuck my history books out of the window was Iris's diaries, because I kept reminding myself, she's my eyewitness and her experience is really what I'm wanting to, to reflect here. So um, that was really helpful in, in sort of anchoring me as the war swept backwards and forwards and sides changed and, you know, Mussolini was was in charge. Mussolini was then um, a, Germ a German ally. Mussolini was then deposed and put in prison. Mussolini was then allowed out of prison. Right. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, just absolutely crazy, crazy um, events un unfolding and so complex. But Iris was my anchor through it all. That's so great. And especially since she like, you know, that she was there and she actually was a person throughout this time. And to have that first person account is incredible oh, and is yeah. such a great thing to to anchor you, because then you just you know that you're getting that accuracy that maybe yeah. other people don't have like, mm -hmm. you know, because it would be so easy to just get caught up and write a never ending book on everything that's happening. It would be so confusing to try and get all the stories that were all happening at the same time within one book. So to have her there as your like leading figure and yeah, your central focus is it's, it, it does make the book so like that much more special. That's great so I'm, to hear. I'm so glad that you had her. <laughs> yeah, and I, but you know, I, I again, it was that balance between doing justice to that complexity, not playing it down, um, the bewilderment of people living there, what it was really like for for the Italians, um, but making it something that that is readable for us all. Yes, definitely. And um, was there other than um, her first hand account? Was there any other kind of texts or books that like? you read that inspired the book or or that gave you another view of what was happening yeah very much so I, I always try and read very widely around whatever subject I'm researching because even though probably 80 to 90 percent of that material won't find its way into a book I think it's so important to have that um, sort of context and mm -hmm. that um, that background and yeah. in terms of evoking atmosphere and in terms of trying to get things right as well I try so hard to get things right um as as all writers do I'm sure when we're researching um so I did read very widely I read Caroline Moorhead's um biography of Iris as well just to to get that sort of um third person account of Iris's life there's also another fantastic book by Caroline Moorhead um called A House in the Mountains. I'm just checking, it's behind me here. Um, A House in the Mountains, The Women Who Liberated Italy from Fascism. And although wow. um, that's not set in Tuscany, that was up in, in the Alps where, it, you know, they were much more on the boundary with what was happening in the war. And so, and, and um, adjoining Switzerland and adjoining France and, and so on. So um, in that area, there was a lot of, um, resistance activity but it's so interesting that you know there are women front and center and that's a great book um there were other books I I loved reading Eric Newby's book Love and War in the Apennines 
because to me also it encapsulates that craziness. He his style of writing is quite sort of light-hearted and um laconic really. And so he always sees the humor and the and the sense of the ridiculous in situations. <laughs> but there he was, he came in as a as a an undercover agent quite early in the war. He was actually he climbed out of a submarine and kayaked in to to Italy. You know, it was all these sort of tin pot ideas that that, that were going on to to try and get um, information and intelligence, and he was captured fairly inevitably, um, and he ended up marrying the woman who was his translator. So, oh, wow. and and he was in a prisoner of war camp, and then he escaped, and then he was recaught. So, his book was lovely. I, I wanted to get some sense of of his voice in there as well because he he's he's such a human writer and it's Mm. very much that sense that you know okay these are really really dire times but life goes on and and that you can sometimes even find humor in in the darkest of times so he he was um he was a great inspiration and again another first-hand witness account that's so incredible. These... That doesn't even sound like a real story. It does sound like <laughs> something that someone's made up. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm going to have and to that... go and read that now. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I wasn't going to rewrite any of those books because they're already out there. They're already great. Um, so what I wanted to write was something a bit different. Yes. My own, My own version. But it definitely, again, it gives that sense of, you know, kind of in the sort of showing the world war ii really did show the kind of horrible kind of how low humanity could go like against Mm. each other and i feel like it always has to balance itself out by then also showing how incredible humanity can be so Mm -hmm. like with all the war that's like raging outside the gates of this villa then on the contrast within these this villa, there's these people who are just opening their arms to everyone and just trying to be as kind as possible. When they have no food left, they're trying to give what food they can, you know, to the children and to the people that come in. And it, it is definitely like, and, you know, you maybe wouldn't have seen them in that light had it not been for that horrible situation, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. causing it to show how incredible these people are. So in that like love and war, I I guess you get that same sense of like, that's like two different ends of the spectrum. It's like love and hate, you know, all the hatred that comes out from war. But because there's so much, it then has to breed some sort of opposite in order to have the balance and and show kind of the love that can come from it as well. And there are wonderful love stories that come out of of times of war or times Mm. of strife or times of trauma, as we know. And that's such an important facet of being human. Definitely. And so are there any books over the past year, um, just completely of your own volition that you've read and thought were just amazing books? I think maybe the best one, the one that stands out for me is um, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. It's, My mum's just read that. <laughs> yes. It's, I love Barbara Kingsolver as a writer anyway. She's one of my absolute favorites and um i'm i'm sure i owe some some debt of gratitude to her in inspiring me to write because i just oh, loved wow. her books and the way that she the way that she says things so much they really spoke to me and she's been writing for a very long time across very many different subjects 
Um, and Demon Copperhead is a rewrite of David Copperfield, but she has she has almost out Dickens Dickens. I think in it. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. It's a it's a story about um, the drugs problem in America. Um, you know, brought right up to date, and yet. You know, we think of Dickensian times as being the, these awful times filled with social outrage and, um, you know, nothing like that could ever happen. You know, hopefully we've moved on. And yet she manages to show, to to relate the the, the current um, epidemic of drug addiction in parts of the USA. And, and these are not just illegal drugs. They are also um, prescribed drugs. Mm -hmm. And so she's looking at the role that Big Pharma plays um, behind the scenes. And it's just such a brilliant book. Her her voice is so loud and so strong, and and Demon Copperhead is this character who who goes through horrendous times. Um, you know, a young a young man from a boy to a young man, um, living in a very poor area of America, and and seeing his life and the life of others around him fall apart. Um, you know, and she's managed to make this parallel with David Copperfield to tell the, basically the same story, but bring it right up to date, make us look at what's going on under our noses today. Mm. And um, yeah, she's just, oh, she's just one of my absolute favourite writers. Yes, I mean, so my mum listened to it on Audible and yeah. it would just be her sitting in the living room staring at nothing and I'd be like, hello, <laughs> and she'd be like, shh. I'm, li I'm listening you can't yeah. you can't interrupt me I mean she listened to it so quickly and and yeah she said she had a, a massive conversation with me and my sister about it because she just said it was absolutely incredible and like harrowing but somehow you're able to get through it because you have yeah. to know you have to understand what's going on and yeah it's incredible that that is actually something that's happening today and that yeah that it's legal is is the thing that I think yeah gets everyone is the fact that doctors are literally prescribing it and how people know that if they go into the pharmacy and say like certain key words they know that they're going to get prescribed that drug yeah and it's you know there's just there's no like screening there's no like you know mental health like you know should we be giving will they be able to handle this drug and just the fact that there's such a concentrated like area where it's just known that everybody's kind of or most people are addicted to this drug mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. nothing's being done about it it's not being taken off the market they're not offering other solutions first all the time you know it's it's kind of it's horrible to think that that is a reality and that that yeah. is amazing I mean I'm gonna have to read it now <laughs> oh you um, definitely should it's it's yeah. a it's a great book and it's a really powerful book it's one of those books that that stays with you a long time mm. after you've finished reading and again you know really incredibly well-drawn characters that that draw you in and you care about them you really care about these these characters and I think that that's one of the the powers of being a writer is to reach new audiences you know if if you just wrote a a, a study or a you know a non-fiction report about mm -hmm. that situation in America it some people would read it of course but not necessarily a wider target audience that could perhaps start to have a conversation and question mm. and criticize and shine a light on what's really going on. And that's, yeah, it's that's so true. So crucial. I mean, see, yeah, because for the most part, you see it on the news and or listen to it on the radio and 
or yeah, read read an article on it and you just think, you know, oh, that's so horrible. And then you go on with your day. Yeah, Whereas yeah. if you have that emotional investment in the characters or the people who, you know, in, you know, are based on people that this is actually happening to, then there's definitely like the discussion is deeper and like something actually could be done about it if people are emotionally invested. Yeah. Yeah. It's about educating so widely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, personally, I think fiction is a great way to do that because it's it's a way of of feeding it to you without knowing you're being fed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you're right about that emotional connection. You know, without we're not trying to manipulate anybody here, but we want to to find ways of getting different messages across and, and getting people to relate to different situations. Mm-hmm. And um fiction can be such a powerful tool in that. Yes, definitely. And, you know, my, my granddad always says, oh, the human is a selfish creature. Yeah. <laughs> you, you do just think, yeah. you know, like you're you are so just caught up in in your own life that you you do need someone to show you that that you care about this person or th- yeah. this representation of this community that you mm-hmm. should care about them. And and I think, yeah, fiction is is such a great way to do that. But fantastic. OK, well, I'm going to tell everyone to read that now (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) and the last thing that we've got to do today is to rate the fantastic (laughs) M&S Scottish all butter toffee and pecan shortbread rounds and so first of all I've just got to thank you because I'd never seen these in (laughs) M&S before I think I'm very much a creature of habit you know I go in I see the orange rounds I grab them and and I go on my way and I don't think I would have spotted these and oh my gosh I would have been missing out those were incredible biscuits aren't they brilliant I love them I mean they take they take I had to choose a Scottish biscuit, of course, because I course. live in Scotland and I'm half Scottish. And that's a very important um, aspect of, of me as a person. So I thought, right, Scottish biscuits, shortbread is your classic, but let's elevate it. Let's take that basic butter, sugar and flour mm. and turn it into something even better. So, of course, probably the greatest extreme is millionaire's shortbread. That's yes. maybe taking it yeah it's great there's a time and a place for that but sometimes that's yes. taking you can't eat that every day it's so rich but this um toffee and pecan shortbread is just a sublime combination I think and it's elevated oh, it's the fantastic. humble shortbread into something else absolutely and like you know you can never go wrong with butter and that has butter in it for sure yeah, <laughs> in, in spadefuls I assume which is just the way to win me over to be honest <laughs> but you know I think sometimes as well with a um, nuts in a biscuit I think can always be kind of hit or miss because yes. sometimes it's just so much but that's just the perfect amount just sprinkled throughout then the toffee oh my gosh actually I just can't believe it I'm I can't sit next to these all day it's just it's not gonna work out well well I'm glad I've managed to get you addicted to them too oh absolutely I mean I did have to rip them out of my dad's hands last night because he was like oh I didn't know I'd bought these great I'm just gonna have 10 and I was like please no this is serious business it's for a podcast exactly so if I if I could get you to give them a rating out of 10 what would they be for you I think I have to give them 10 because they've got that perfect balance and they mm-hmm. bridge that gap between something that's a real treat and something that's every day. Yes. I 
I was thinking nine because normally I reserve chocolate for my number uh, 10 okay. but then in this weather it's 30 degrees and I'm thinking yeah. I don't want chocolate I want this I want this every day so <laughs> it, it would it would be a nine or a ten for me but right. it's the lowest it would ever be as a nine right Loved so we, so we agreed on 9.5 <laughs> nine and a yes half. absolutely <laughs> so everyone needs to go get a copy of the cypress maze and a packet of biscuits make stuff a cup of tea and you're gonna have a great summer <laughs> without chocolatey hands yes you d- <laughs> nobody needs to deal with the melting chocolate not not in this heat <laughs> oh amazing thank you so much for being on the podcast today it's been an absolute pleasure it's lovely to chat to you and talk about you know life the universe and biscuits yes. um really All my favorite it. topics <laughs> yeah keep, and, um, keep, keep up with your podcast it's just wonderful I love it Oh, thank you so much. Really? Oh, that honestly, that just, that means so much. Like I I enjoy doing it and it's just, it's amazing to actually be able um, to talk to people about their books, especially when I've loved them so much. And um, I saw, uh, uh, I'm going to forget his name, but uh, Catcher in the Rye quote. Um, J.D. Salinger. Yeah. Yeah. And in the book, um, Holden Caulfield says like, I'm summarizing here because I haven't got the exact words in front of me but he just says like wouldn't it be amazing to be able to talk read a fantastic book finish it and then be able to call the author up and tell them how (laughs) much you'd love that but that never really happens and I think well now that does happen for me I I get to talk to all these authors about how much I love their book and and genuinely like even if this hadn't been happening I would have gone out and bought your book because I I just loved it so much it was just amazing to read really thank you so much that's a really lovely accolade And that's all for this week. A big thank you to Fiona Valpi for being such a wonderful guest. And don't forget to pick up a copy of The Cypress Maze, which is out now. Thank you all for listening. And as always, if you share our episodes on social media, don't forget to tag us at legend underscore times on Instagram and at legend underscore times underscore on Twitter. Tune in again next week as one of our wonderful fiction editors, Carrie Rosen, talks to the delightful Fran Hill about the inspiration behind her funny, moving and fresh debut novel, Cuckoo in the Nest, which is based in part on Fran's childhood in foster care. Until then, have a great Monday, everyone.